Teens have the ability to know how much they need to eat. And when we interfere with that as parents, we start to break down their natural ability. When we model that we trust our children to listen to their bodies, that they are in charge of their bodies, it also models consent. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I'm chatting with Signa Darpinian, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified eating disorder specialist, and host of Therapy Rocks, a personal growth podcast. She is also the co-author of No Way, A Teen's Guide to Positive Body Image, Food, and Emotional Wisdom, and the new book, How to Raise Body Positive Teens, A Parent's Guide to Diet-Free Living, Exercise, and Body Image. So I'm really thrilled to have Signa on the podcast because she is someone who can answer all your questions about intuitive eating and anti-diet life with teenagers. This is something that comes up a ton. And there are these nuances, of course, as kids get older, these conversations shift. So here's Signa, but first a quick break. Hey, if you have been liking this podcast and thinking, how can I support the show? Here is a great way for you to do it. Become a Burnt Toast subscriber. It's just $5 per month or $50 per year. And it will get you a whole bunch of great perks, including subscriber-only bonus episodes. Next week is another bonus episode. And I am going to be doing a hot takes on, is it a diet or is it a wellness plan? You know the answer to that question, but it was pretty fun to go down some of these marketing rabbit holes and I think you're gonna really enjoy it. So go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to subscribe. Do it now before next week so you get that bonus episode in your podcast player. You also get all of the reported essays and my monthly Ask Virginia column delivered directly to your email. And you'll become a part of the Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday thread discussions. Again, just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to subscribe. And if you want to support the show but don't have five bucks, remember you're also helping tens when you subscribe for free in your podcast player and leave us a rating or a review. Or just tell a friend about the show. Or just keep listening. That works too. Whatever you do, thank you so much for supporting independent anti-diet journalism. Hi, Zigna. Thanks for being here. Virginia, thank you for having me. I am such a fan of your work and especially the new book. Why don't we start by having you tell our listeners a little more about yourself and your work? I've been treating eating disorders now for over 20 years. And something that's kind of interesting, when I hear other people's stories in our field, I actually had the good fortune of being exposed to non-diet and weight-inclusive approaches right in the beginning when I was really green, attending my very first conferences, you know, in the special interest groups. I was definitely very drawn to them. Yeah, it's something that I was exposed to and very lit up about right from the beginning. And it's been interesting in 20 plus years to see the different trends. You know, Mm -hmm. like you talk about in your book, The Eating Instinct, to see the trends of diet culture being much more straightforward. Right. (laughs) In the beginning, like Jenny Craig, to now more like wellness culture. A couple other things about me. I started a podcast right in the beginning of the pandemic, which wasn't a horrible podcast listening time. (laughs) And let's see, one other thing, I'm what some people call a single mother by circumstance, was a little bit different than a single mom by choice, happy accident. And it can also be interesting being a single parent and doing this food piece, 
doing food when partners feel different ways about diet culture can be interesting. Yes. So my lived experience is more like, well, we're going to do it this way. And I, you know, so <laughs> that's not always a parallel to what other people experience. But I have a 12 year old daughter. And this last book was you know, it's a lot bigger book. It mm-hmm. was a much bigger project than our teen book. And my daughter, yeah, she threatened to stab the book in the heart when it comes <laughs> out in March. And she was for real, not joking. Is that because of the time it took or because she disagrees with the content? <laughs> she, no, she doesn't really know the content. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a, it's a funny question because, or it's a good question. Uh, the teen book, No Way, is actually just perfect for her age. 12 mm-hmm. would be a great starting age. And we talked about that. You know, she has it on her bookshelf. And I asked her if she would consider reading it. And she's like, only if you pay me. I'm like, how much are we talking about? <laughs> I'm like, like 20 bucks. She's like, mm, we're like 100. I'm like, forget it. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so no, it's not the content because I don't think she'll ever know. She has no interest. It's more like, uh, you know how it is with writing. It took a lot of time. Yeah. It was a much yeah. bigger project. And those last few weeks, they're pretty daunting. Yeah. You know, oh, it's, yeah. it's a lot of hard work and really fun. But she was ready for it to be done. Yeah. yeah which I yeah. understand. My eight-year-old often asks like, oh, are you still writing that book? And I'm like, <laughs> okay, okay. A little, yeah. little tone there, a little judgment. Yeah. Um, she's like, how many chapters are you trying to do? <laughs> she, yeah. she definitely is well. Virginia, what about your recent post about your eight-year-old never wanting to be oh, yes. a writer? <laughs> <laughs> ever unless she had to for, for money. the money which I was like oh how do I explain to you <laughs> you have to do things for the money this is not the thing <laughs> I've definitely got a reluctant reader over here mine's a reader but she does not like writing as she made clear <laughs> and she <laughs> sort of like feels sorry for me with this career choice but <laughs> okay so the big reason I wanted to have you on is because I get lots of questions from parents of teenagers and I really relate to the sense of panic I get in these emails where parents say, I'm just now discovering concepts like intuitive eating or diet culture and recognizing fat phobia that I've been playing into for years. But maybe during their kids' earlier childhood, they were more controlling around food or they were on diets and talking about it, you know, or there was this whole different culture that now they're recognizing was problematic, but they're just feeling like, well, now what do I do? My kid's 14 or 16 or 20. And this is a shift we want to make, but is it too late? The short answer is, from my perspective, it's never too late. And I do like this idea when we're thinking about parenting. My colleague said this really early on. She said, you know, we're not modeling as parents perfectionism. We're modeling humanity. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, Virginia, but I try to do my best in modeling good mistake making and really taking ownership for my part in things more than Mm -hmm. I try to model being perfect. Well, because I couldn't anyway. But I I think it's just, yeah, because I've tried that and it doesn't work. And so we are all immersed in diet culture and it's really, really sneaky and there's so much morality around food. It makes sense. You know, parents are in the same culture and just thinking about their evolution of things for them, that the evolution of their body image and the messaging they received when they were young, What was going on at their table with food or not at the table with food? What was happening with food? What was happening with body image and the conditioning that that they come with? And so on one hand, I think parents hold a lot of power. And our hope in writing the parent book is that we can give parents a point of reference Mm -hmm. to what a friendship with food might look like or a friendship with body might look like because we've really lost our way as a culture. 
And so we hope for them to become really awake and aware about where they are. When did they become disembodied? When did they become disconnected from their own body? And also kind of thinking about ways that they might like to be different as it relates to their food and their body image so that they can extend it outward. You know, because a lot of times, I'm sure you see this too, Virginia, but I have friends, for example, that by now know about body positivity and intuitive eating. And so they know the right things to say, but there's an incongruency with what they're saying and what they're doing themselves. And our kids and our teens, they can sniff out those incongruencies. Mm -hmm. So if we can think about the ways that we would like to be different and think of it in terms of it's a process, not a finished product, I think that's a great starting place for parents. What you're really modeling is recognizing mistakes and learning from mistakes because kids know we're making mistakes all the time. Totally. They are not fooled. So, you know, for us to own that and say like, yeah, I've been getting this wrong and I'm trying to do it differently. That feels so powerful. I would imagine kids would appreciate, even if, of course, they don't say, oh, thanks, mom. I really appreciate that. Right. Right. (laughs) It's not going to be communicated like that. What does this shift look like if you're starting this with older kids? You know, concepts like division of responsibility, I think, can be so helpful when you're developing this with younger kids. But The guidance gets a little hazier as kids get older. They are more adept at preparing their own food. They're out in the world more so they can take kind of more responsibility in some senses. But I think parents often don't know how and when to really hand over that responsibility. Something I've been thinking about lately, division of responsibility, the way that I understand it is, you know, the parent is in charge of the when to eat and the what to eat. I like to put a lot of emphasis on being very mindful about the what to eat, not being quote unquote only healthy food. Mm-hmm. I think that can be problematic when somebody's in charge of the what to eat and they are immersed in their own diet culture. That could go really badly. <laughs> and then, of course, the child or the teen is in charge of the how much. So I think those concepts can be brought forward at different stages of life. But one one disclaimer I want to make about division of responsibility is that the place that I'm coming from is that I'm doing that in my home with my daughter. And in my caseload, by the time people come to me, there is already a very serious problem. Sure. There is already a clinical eating disorder. And as you can imagine, the thing that I'm hearing most often from parents when there's already a clinical eating disorder is that, you know what? I just thought they were trying to eat healthier and exercise more. So that's the way that it's looking right now. And to be honest, Virginia, because, you know, I'm on the front lines in this work. If my daughter came to me and said she wanted to eat healthier, I would respond to it in the same way as if she told me she wanted to start smoking cigarettes. Yeah, it's a big red flag. It is. It's a big red flag by the time that it gets there. And so I just don't want to do any false advertising around division of responsibility. That it doesn't work for people in the acute stages of an eating disorder. That's not where you go. That might be an end stage, but that's not where you start when you're in treatment. Exactly. And division of responsibility is going to look very different with my 12-year-old than it is with somebody else's. So I just want to say that. But Keeping that in mind, I feel like we have this continuum. And at one end of the continuum, we have households that may have been modeling externally imposed restriction. 
Externally imposed restriction might look like a parent, like you said, micromanaging a teen or a child's food and being very concerned, feeding them in a way that really has to do with their concern about their weight. And then on the other end, you might have a household that almost looks too loose. And that's actually the household that I had up until my daughter was in kindergarten Mm -hmm. or first grade because I was so aware of attuned ways of eating and how important a more connected way of eating is, I wasn't providing enough structure for my particular child. So that doesn't mean that other children couldn't do just fine with a very loose household with food. So in my own circumstance, my daughter was needing more structure and guidance around food the same way she needed a bedtime. And so with teenagers, I think that the parents can still incorporate a lot of the division of responsibility paradigm making sure that the foods are there. And one of the guidelines that we use in our book is making foods equal, not only equal in morality, but equal in availability. Mm. And so equal in availability might look like if the refrigerator was full of foods that sort of matched an all foods fits paradigm. So all the foods are there, not just the ones deemed healthy, quote unquote. If the foods were there and equally easy to grab, so maybe there's cubed up fruit and there's cheese sticks and there's fun-sized candy, if it's all there equally easy to grab, we can then grab the food that our body's actually calling for versus what's easiest. Mm -hmm. But I also want to make the disclaimer that we don't always have the time to do the preliminary work to make foods equally easy to grab. Sure. Equal in availability. So I just want to name that, you know, sometimes we will, sometimes we won't, no big. So those are a couple of things, making food not only equal in morality, but equal in availability, division of responsibility, parents still being in charge of the when and the what, when it makes sense. So Mm -hmm. in the morning for school, right? Mm -hmm. After school snack, maybe, you know, unless there's a sport after school and at dinner. And I think one of the things that really resonates with me is not micromanaging what they're up to with their food during the day. So Mm. they're clearly going to have a lot more autonomy with food. Some of them are driving now. They have their own money. They're going to friends' houses. So you would never sort of like assess or take an inventory of what was eaten that day and base your dinner decision or dessert decision on what they had during the day. Oh, I think that's really helpful to think about. I like, like that one. That's yeah. their opportunity to be practicing these skills out in the world. And totally. that's not your problem. Like to sort of say, oh, well, if you had ice cream after school, then we can't exactly. have cookies with dinner or something. Exactly. Yeah. So if I ask my daughter, oh, what'd you guys have for snack today? You know, I know somebody brought something in. If my intention is I want to see if she had sweets Mm. and that'll determine if we have dessert or night, then I'm not going to say anything. But if my intention is just genuinely, I'm curious, then I might ask. Does that make sense? That's a helpful distinction. And then with the teenagers too, there's another component that comes in. And this piece would really come more from co-author Wendy, the dietitian. She says, you know, with teenagers, it is also a really nice time to start introducing some basic food prep skills. So maybe they're in charge of one recipe for dinner during the week, or maybe they're putting together their own lunch. You're making the food available, maybe accessible, like mentioned but they're maybe in charge of some of those chores Mm -hmm. that are related to food prep or cleanup as it relates to a meal. And one other thing I want to bring in around that, and this comes from a podcast I did with somebody who's an expert on adulting, Julie Lithcott-Hames, and she was talking about how Right now, which is really different from how we grew up, Virginia, you know, I think you were more a teen in the 90s, I was Mm -hmm. in the 80s, (laughs) and we didn't experience a culture of busyness in quite the same way that we're seeing today. And so sometimes these meal prep chores 
We're not having our kids do them because they're too busy. Everybody's too busy. And I can empty the dishwasher quicker than they can, or I can set the table quicker than they can. So I might as well just do it for them. So I just wanted to bring in how the culture of busyness may show up in what we're talking about as well. I think that applies for parents of all ages. I mean, I even all think ages. about that now with my eight-year-old, she could be clearing the table more. She could be, you know, or even the right. four-year-old can be, you know, we do have them clear their own plates, but we were just having a conversation of like, how do we start to build in like small opportunities for these skills that, you know, because if we can start building them now, you know, I want a 16-year-old who can make her own lunch. <laughs> I don't want to be packing lunches when they're 16. <laughs> I mean, before I did that interview also, I don't know that I was as aware of it. Yeah. You know, I, my 12-year-old's like, can you get me some water? I'm like, yeah. hey, you're as tall as I am. Go get it yourself. <laughs> and so right now I'm just kind of more noticing how mm-hmm. much I'm like, you know what? There's no time for her to empty the dishwasher. I'm just going to do it. Or, yeah. you know, there's no time for this. And there's no time for that. And Julie Lithcott-Hames, who was a Stanford dean for several years, she noticed a trend. She's like, you know what? A lot of these kids that are entering school nowadays, it looks like somebody's been cutting their meat for too long. (laughs) Yeah, way too long. And one other skill too, as far as parents thinking about first steps that they might take in getting more attuned and connected to their body's wisdom, we really like the hunger meter as a starting place. And the way that we use the hunger meter, we have a pretty basic hunger meter that's, I think, a pretty common one, which is one to 10. And at the higher end is the fullness end. So say six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's the fullness. Those are the fullness gradations of the hunger meter. Mm-hmm. And then the lower end, the one would be famished, you know, like starving. And a three would be the first sign of appetite. So eating to appetite, whatever that feels like for a particular person. And so when somebody is going from eating with a diet mentality and very disconnected or eating from the chin up, which Mm. means like reducing their food choices to nutrients only and what I should and shouldn't eat. When you go from years of eating from the chin up in a very disconnected, disembodied way, and you're going to start trying to eat from your body's cues, the hunger meter can be a nice tool. Some people aren't calibrated enough to start eating intuitively. And so they might need to do mechanical eating, which a simplified, I guess, definition of mechanical eating might be eating by the clock on the wall. Like, okay, I'm going to eat within the first two hours that I awake, you know, Mm -hmm. by nine o'clock. And then, you know, I'm going to eat again at lunch at 12 o'clock. So it may require some calibration first. That's for folks who maybe in the past have been skipping meals or eating really erratically. Right. And so this is to make sure you are eating during the day and not sort of skipping and ending up over hungry. So first of all, thinking about getting recalibrated, doing some mechanical eating, Ultimately, that might give you some access to your body's cues. And then the hunger meter as a tool may come in handy. We get told a lot that that's probably one of the most helpful tools. And we have a chapter on the different gradations. But here's what it would look like once you're recalibrated. Maybe you just ate lunch at noon and it's two o'clock and you're feeling a pull toward food. Okay, just trying to kind of identify where you might be on, on the hunger meter. So maybe you're at a five and you're neutral. And you're not hungry and you're not full, but you're feeling Mm -hmm. that pull toward food. The hunger meter is meant to really just be used as a tool that you're checking in and you're kind of deciding from the inside and becoming awake and aware about where you are. So really, it's all about choice. The target behavior here is really about creating a little bit of space between you and the food and just assessing where you are. 
oh, I'm at a five. I'm neutral. I'm not hungry. I'm not full. All right. Well, then, you know, just be awake and aware of what's going on for you. And then what Mm -hmm. you do after that is up to you. That's your choice. So the intervention or the target isn't so much what you end up doing with the food. Maybe you eat it. Maybe you don't. Who cares? The intervention is more just becoming awake and aware so you have more choice around your food. That's a helpful distinction because I do think there's a risk of using hunger meters and feeling like, well, I'm not hungry enough. Like there's definitely a way to turn it into a diet. (laughs) You could turn it into a diet in a nanosecond. Yeah. So really, it's just creating that space between you and the food. Another thing you have in the book that I really love is the chapter on boundaries. And I love one you just highlighted, setting a boundary of not policing what your kid eats out of the house. What else do parents of teenagers need to understand about boundaries? And what kind of boundaries should we be trying to respect when kids set them around food and body? So actually, one of my favorite excerpts around boundaries and food is from the chapter co-written with Anna Lotz. And this is a quote from her. And she says, teens have the ability to know how much they need to eat. And when we interfere with that as parents, we start to break down their natural ability. When we model that we trust our children to listen to their bodies, that they are in charge of their bodies, it also models consent. So I think this really illuminates the importance of not interfering with children's or teens' stopping place. You are really helping them strengthen the muscle of listening to their instinct and honoring it. We might be talking about food right now, but in allowing them to do that with their food and not saying like, you're not going to get up from the table until you eat your broccoli or you can't have your dessert until you do this or you need to, you know, you're not going to have another piece of pizza or whatever it is. Yeah, that's such a powerful moment, I think, for parents to realize that these concepts we're working on around the dinner table and that trust in bodies that we're modeling, like that is going to translate to how your kids trust their bodies in so many different settings. And that's, I mean, that's all we want, right? We want our kids to listen to their bodies yes. first and foremost in dating and, you know, you know, all of that. Exactly. And so that's my favorite boundary as it relates to food. And then in the boundaries chapter, we have an example. We did this effective communication model. We call it like ad libs for effective communication. And it's an effective communication model that I see in a lot of places. It's pretty well documented. But I think that when we're talking about like, oh, you've got to have a body boundary, and, and not let other people, you know, comment on your body, whether it's positive or negative, letting them know where you stand. Like, hey, it's not okay when you comment on my body without my consent. So the when you is you, you stick with the facts. Then you grab like one or two feeling words, you know, I feel angry. And then the because. So because is what is it about them commenting on your body that makes you feel this way? Because it gives me the impression that you're scrutinizing my body. Okay, so it's a really simple formula. And of course, you want to make it yours. You don't want to sound like a therapy session. So the person may come in and say, well, gosh, I mean, I just thought you looked great. And I thought I would just tell you, it looks like you've lost weight. You know, the best way to win that game is to not play. (laughs) And so you make a response and just say, that may be your perspective, but I wanted to let you know how those comments affect me. Okay, so that's great and lovely. And sometimes it helps to practice what you would have you know, in your journal or with a therapist or to a friend that you feel really safe with. Sometimes it's helpful to just write out what you would have liked to have said Mm. that you didn't feel comfortable saying as you're practicing and getting ready to do boundaries. But something I think we leave out when we talk about boundaries is they're really hard. (laughs) And, you know, especially if somebody has been taught to not make waves in their family of origin, 
or if somebody's temperament is conflict avoidant and they're more people pleasing and they value harmonious relationships. So it's not very comfortable for people. And so I think it's important when we're talking about boundaries is instead of just saying like, oh, be sure to have a boundary and don't let anybody comment on your body. Also bringing in this preparation, which we talked about, but when you do have these boundaries for the first time, just kind of mentioning to people that it's going to, it might feel really bad at first. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, really bad. So in the chapter, I talked about my own experience where I just would feel so awful in practicing boundaries for the first time. Like I robbed a bank or something, (laughs) but I want to remind people that it feels bad in that situation, not because your boundary is wrong, but because you're breaking a pattern. I appreciate the script you've given us because I think the other person's reaction is often what makes it feel so dangerous. You can't control whether or not the boundary will be respected or how they'll respond. So that follow-up of that may be your perspective, but I wanted you to know how these comments affect me. That's so helpful because that gives you a next place to go and a way to get out of it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It kind of, it follows the boundary all the way, Yeah, you know, because, and of course it depends on who you're giving the boundary to. If it's a person that feels really safe and you have an egalitarian relationship with them, then they're going to hear it and be very receptive in a way that's going to be different Mm -hmm. from delivering a boundary from somebody who is out of balance. When you give a boundary to some people, they're not going to be happy. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. So you just, I kind of just like hearing that, like they're not going to be happy. Yeah, And it's important for us to really get comfortable with tolerating somebody not being okay with us. And not feeling like it's our job to fix them not being happy about the boundary we needed to set. Yeah, you can say it in the most eloquent way. And some people may still not be happy. And that's all right. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was your social media chapter. I mean, this is a major route that teenagers are being exposed to diet culture. So yeah, talk a little bit about how you advise parents to engage with kids on this. How do we talk about the negative food and body messages that kids are encountering online while sort of holding that kids want to be on social media, you know, that there's a real need for it. Yeah. So the one thing that I learned while writing this book is, and this comes from our dialoguing with Sarah Gilliam about social media. So in preparing for their 25th anniversary book and reviving Ophelia, they did 18 months of focus groups with adolescent girls specifically and their parents. And what was interesting is that every single one of those teenagers were told up front when they first got their devices, we are going to be checking in on your social media on a regular basis. So just so you know, whatever you put Mm -hmm. out there, you know, in a text or group chat or whatever it is, it's for the whole world to see. And I am going to be looking at it regularly. And almost every single one of the parents never did follow up on that. And I can relate to it. I have a 12-year-old, so yeah. And so I can relate to it, not only from my caseload of teenagers, this is something I'm dealing with regularly with my particular caseload, but also with my 12-year-old. I think it's worth mentioning that we have really good intentions and we know that the technology genie is out of the bottle and not going back in. And we want to want to check their social media on a regular basis, (laughs) right? But it's mind-numbing. It's not fun. We want to be sitting down like every few days or weekly or whatever it is for a parent and kind of scrolling through and having them give us a tour of their TikTok or their different sites to see what they're seeing and talk to them about it. But I think the one of the biggest issues is that it's just not very fun. Yeah. And we don't want to do it. And there's a little bit of avoidance, you know? 
I mean, I already feel that way about hearing my eight-year-old talk about Animal Crossing. So I can't even imagine how I'll feel when it's TikTok. Yeah. Yeah, it's super boring. So let's just say that out loud. And in the chapter, we did use one of Sarah's interventions that she calls peer-to-peer agreements. We talk about getting kids together and doing peer-to-peer agreements, I think is going to be a lot more powerful tool. I mean, we're going to be doing it too. We do, you know, I think we need to have parent-to-parent agreements where we're checking in with each other. Did you check your kids? TikTok this week because whatever. But peer-to-peer agreements, I think, are really powerful, more so than what they might hear from a teacher or from a parent, where they get together and talk about their agreements. So it's not uncommon for me to have a teenager in my caseload totally distraught because her friend was mad at her for not being on call at 2 a.m. because Mm. she had a breakup. You see, so there's a lot going on behind the scenes with the social media, a lot of expectations. So maybe one of the agreements is, hey, you know, we're putting our phones away at 10 p.m., depending on the age, right? Right. Or we're we're doing this or we're doing that so that people know ahead of time and they don't have unrealistic expectations for accessibility to each other as one point, you know. The other thing is I've seen parents who are checking social media too often Mm -hmm. and it feels a little like dimming the kid's light. Um, And I've also seen parents not do it often enough. And so I think it's really different for everybody, but we need to be finding something that's sort of in the middle of being too strict or too loose with the media. And I think too, you talk about sort of needing to respect what kids are getting out of it. I mean, there's the social piece and then you've also talked about like the creative expression that comes with social media. I don't know if you want to say anything more about that. Yeah, I'd love to. You know, I did an interview with a colleague and good friend of mine, and she is a registered art therapist. She talks a lot about how, you know, we really see our kids trying to express themselves creatively through social media, through, you know, music and dance, and they're looking for art as well as creating it themselves. And while on one hand, that can be okay, (laughs) on the other hand, we know that not all the images that they're seeing are positive. And what she says so eloquently is that social media is not meant to take the place of going to see art in real time Mm. or doing our own art. And so I can just think of an example over the holidays, over this last holiday, my mom was in town and she really had to kind of push us out the door to go to the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco. I'm over in the San Francisco Bay Area and I didn't really want to go like uh, the parking and, ooh, you know, an <laughs> art show. Uh. And we ended up getting there and I'm so glad that we ended up doing it. And there is and, and, and bringing my daughter and one of the times we, we brought her friends to and, you know, they didn't love everything, but it's good for them to get exposed to art in different ways than all. On an online platform. Yeah. And to think about art, I mean, I guess in a museum, there is still an audience for the art, but it's a much different audience than oh, when yeah. you're only putting things on social media and thinking of art as something you make for the world, you know, for the right. whole internet, you know. Yeah, that's a great point. I think point. that's really powerful for kids to realize that art is something they can do just for themselves, you know, or for a, in a different sort of setting. So I love that. Yeah. I think that's really helpful for parents who... Yeah, it's like you're trying to appreciate what they're getting out of it, but you're also figuring out the self-regulation piece and kind of helping them learn those tools. And it's a messy thing. We have to keep meddling through. And making sure that there's plenty of time where we allow our kids to be bored Mm -hmm. and not sort of swoop in and rescue them from the boredom. And having art supplies available and accessible would be great. I do want to mention the ability to have art supplies and to go see art, depending on where you are, can be a privilege 
Nowadays, places like the dollar store have a lot better art supplies than they did 10 years ago. So there are ways to get it cheaper, you know, than we used to be able to. So that's cool. But yeah, I like the idea of making sure they have a fair amount of time just hanging out in their boredom and learning to tolerate it and giving them an opportunity to come up with their own creative and imaginative expression, you know, through their own art. I love that. That's so helpful. So we always wrap up the show with a segment I call Butter for Your Burnt Toast, where we give a recommendation. <laughs> and yours, I think, kind of goes nicely from this whole art conversation. So Signa, what is your butter for us today? Okay, so my butter today, let's see, something that I've been up to lately that I actually used to do in my 20s and 30s, and I rediscovered it recently, is collaging. What's really cool about collaging is that I don't have art skill, so I don't know how to draw. I don't necessarily know how to paint. So collaging can be one of the least daunting forms of creative expression. And what I like about it, too, is that you can use the catalogs that come in the mail, to just kind of spend time just sort of cutting out images that inspire you, which can be really meditative. My colleague calls it visual journaling. And it's kind of cool because it can give your journaling a three-dimensional quality. And for teens sometimes that maybe don't want to be writing in their journal because they're afraid a parent might see it, journaling through art or visuals can be a way to express and kind of get your, maybe your dark thoughts out on paper so that they're not, you know, staying private. But also, so only you really know what the symbols and the metaphors mean in the art. Right. And so it's something that I've been doing myself and I've also been doing with clients. And I think it's been really helpful. I have a couple of clients that I'm doing that with right now that struggle a little bit with unhealthy perfectionism, maybe like in their sport. Mm -hmm. And so just spending time just cutting out images and doing collage in a way that you can't really get it wrong. Right. It teaches them. It's just nice because it's a mindfulness practice. It helps them pace themselves. And so it's just been a lot of fun. That's something I'm into. And lately I've been making collage cards. Oh, I love that. Right? Yeah. So cards are pretty expensive. At least the ones that I really like are expensive. And you can personalize a collage card for a birthday card and make it, you know, uniquely for somebody that you're close to. And anyway, it's just a fun way to also share your art. I mean, I'm obsessed. I want to start collaging oh, immediately. It's so this, fun. It's, it's so fun. That sounds fantastic. It sounds like a great thing to do with teenagers, with younger oh, kids. Yeah. You know, Any age. Yeah. It's, it's something I also did for a while and sort of dropped. And now as you're talking about it, I'm like, huh, where did that go? I need to bring collaging back. So I love that. That's a wonderful yeah, idea. Yeah. It's a really fun thing to just get totally lost in also. Yeah. 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 Well, my better this week is a movie recommendation. It's not a new movie, so probably most people have seen it. But I think it came out one of the years I had a baby, so I didn't see it because, you know, the year you have a child, you're kind of culturally illiterate. <laughs> so it's Inside Out. And <gasps> oh. I had a feeling you would be a fan. <laughs> um, we just watched it with our kids a few weeks ago. We're doing like a monthly family movie night where we kind of take turns picking a movie. And it was so funny because our four-year-old was really resistant. She's resistant to watching new shows. So she had a lot of feelings before we started. And then she was just mesmerized. And I think she has watched it eight times since then. I mean, wow. we were all stuck in the house with COVID for two weeks. So it was like inside out was like 
<laughs> and it's been so cool because she is really using the tools from it. So for people who don't know, the premise of Inside Out is that it's this 11-year-old girl, Riley, who's going through some big like personal life stuff. And it's narrated by the emotions in her head. And so you see the sadness and joy and anger and disgust and fear kind of constantly narrating what's happening to Riley and what's happening within her head. And now when my four-year-old gets mad, she goes, oh, angry guy, you're being so loud in my head right now. <laughs> and Oh my gosh, that's so perfect. It's amazing. Labeling emotion, yes, right? Yes, because she's labeling the emotions. And it kind of takes her down a notch. You know, like she'll scream yeah. and be frustrated and then she'll go, oh, that angry guy, you know? And then we can kind of like talk about, oh, what is angry guy so angry about? And, you know, so yeah, if you're looking for a way to talk about feelings with kids in a super accessible, and it's just like such a beautiful movie. I mean, the whole, every part of it, it's the most amazing way of explaining how the brain it works. It is so gets. well done. It's beautiful. Yeah. And you know, Virginia, my other co-author, Dr. Shelley Agarwal, she's an adolescent medicine doctor. We were just talking about Inside Out because in our friendship with body image chapter, we have this section on how peers, it's really normative for peers to over-identify, for adolescents to over-identify with their peer groups. And she was talking about how perfect the movie Inside Out is to really explain and show yeah. that over-identification with a peer group. Diversifying our interests are a really great way to protect you know, yes. ourselves from body image dissatisfaction or eating issues, diversifying oh, yeah. interests. Yeah. I mean, we we're just having a conversation about it. And I've been talking about watching it with my daughter again. I'm so excited. It's one of our family's movies now because I can see it being something we come back to like throughout the years. They'll get different things. Like right now, the four-year-old loves Angry Guy and she loves the imaginary friend Bing Bong because she has many yeah. imaginary friends, I you know. That. But the eight-year-old also, you know, the eight-year-old is like a little more close to the vest with feelings. And she, I think, felt very seen by the movie. Like, oh, other people have all these big feelings inside them. That whole piece of it was so wonderful to see. It's just a brilliant movie. It really is. I mean, they really did their homework. Um, yeah. Now I'm excited. That's going to be our movie this week, too. Oh, yay. I can't <laughs> yeah. wait to hear. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. Well, Signet, tell listeners where they can find more of you. And of course, everyone needs to check out the book. So give us all the info on that, too. Oh, thank you. Yes. So the pre-order link for Raising Body Positive Teens is now available. It became available January 21st, 2022. And I think the best way would just be going to my website. And there's a book tab. It's www.signadarpinion.com. And it's there. Both the books are there. And yeah, that'd be amazing. Awesome. And we will link to that in the transcript and the episode description for sure. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Virginia, thank you for having me. I had so much fun. You have a great day. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. You get a ton of cool perks, including next week's bonus episode, and you will keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.